this morning the song Yearn by Shane and Shane was just running through my mind like crazy. And in it, they sing the lyrics, Lord, I want to yearn for you. I want to burn with passion over you, only you. I think we can all understand those lyrics are amazing. And we can all say, and I think we, we truthfully think that we can say, I want that to be true. I want to yearn for the Lord. I want to burn with passion over him. I think it's much easier said than done. All week long, I've been wrestling with this sermon, how to start it, if I was going to preface it, if I wasn't, if I was going to say a disclaimer, if I wasn't, I think I'm going to. I don't even have a title. I couldn't. All week long. It's the only thing that's been on my mind. I was here until 2.30 in the morning on Friday night, wrestling with it, working on it. Saturday, reading, reflecting, reading books. Going to talk about suffering. And I know it seems like every time I preach, it's something hard, suffering. Okay, let's go, let's get on with it, move on. Every time he preaches, it's this But I just want to challenge everybody in this room. Read the entire New Testament this week. The entire New Testament this week. Takes 18 hours and 20 minutes. If you just sat down and read from Matthew to Revelation, it would take you 18 hours and 20 minutes. Read the entire thing this week. Do it. Maybe take the month. I don't care. Go to bed an hour earlier, wake up an hour earlier, whatever. Read the entire New Testament and see how often they talk about suffering. They talk about trials. All four Gospels, it's explicit. Jesus, the main character, suffers for the sake of his people. Acts is literally the story of the apostles going out in the early church suffering for preaching the Gospel. Romans talks about suffering a lot. 2 Corinthians, one of the major themes is suffering. Paul defends his servanthood in Christ on the basis of how much he has suffered for Christ. Philippians is about finding joy in the midst of suffering. Colossians today, our text is on suffering. 1 Thessalonians talks about suffering a lot. 2 Timothy opens up with Paul talking about suffering. The book of Hebrews Chapter 11, it's all about saints who have gone before us, who have suffered for the sake of righteousness. The book of James starts out with, if you're not brethren, there will be trials among you. Take joy in them. First Peter, one of the main themes, all about suffering. Second Peter, suffering. Jude, suffering. And of course, the book of Revelation, suffering. The reason it's talked a lot about is because it's something that's supposed to be real in the Christian life. We don't like it because it's foreign to us. We don't want suffering to be real, and because it's not real, we don't want to hear about it because it's not relevant. Ask the churches in China and Afghanistan. 
If they would like to be encouraged with sermons on suffering, they would. Why? Because they're suffering. Because when they read the scripture and when they experience life around them, suffering is the only thing that makes sense. They love Jesus, they're going to suffer. I kid you not, the church in China, when these Christians get arrested and they're riding in the back of the cop car on the way to jail, they are in tears. This is a true story. This is not me making this up. They are in tears. The first thing that they're doing is crying tears of repentance unto the Lord that it took them so long to get arrested for their faith. Because in their mind, when they read the scripture and they see all about the, the suffering servanthood of, of a Christian, they're deeply wounded over the fact that it took them this long to get arrested. And they're in repentance and they're crying to the Lord, God, I'm sorry. My life didn't emulate you enough for me to get arrested sooner. And we come here in America, <clears throat> we don't like to hear it. Let's do a mental exercise for the first part of this sermon. My introduction is going to be long. Hypothetically, if we were to die tomorrow and we found out that Christianity was a sham, that Jesus wasn't God, that the Bible really was just a fairy tale, there was no afterlife, would your life have been in vain? Think about it. Has your Christianity negatively affected your life and all of its circumstances? Let's be real. Today, if I stood at the pulpit and proved to you that Christianity was made up, would you feel most pitied in this life? In other words, would you look back on your life to date and regret following Jesus? Some might say, no, my faith has made me a better person. Well, that's great, but according to what standard? Some, probably most of us, if being honest, we would look back and maybe regret the way we spent our Sunday mornings. Maybe I should have gone hunting after all. Maybe I should have taken a couple more fishing trips and missed church. Maybe I should have let my kids play sports on Sunday and we should have been traveling. If none of this was real, I guess I did waste all of my Sunday mornings. Has the time we have spent in the word and in prayer been substantial enough time to regret doing so if God isn't real? In other words, if you added up all the time in your life that you've spent doing the godly disciplines of communing with his people and communing with him in his word and in prayer, could you have actually used that time for something more important? Since Christ isn't real anyways, could you have better spent your time? Has our Christianity ever produced any trials in our life that if we weren't Christians, we wouldn't have had to go through? I'm not talking about sicknesses. I'm not talking about your car breaking down. I'm talking about real trials because you're a Christian. Is anyone in this room significantly less rich or fortunate in life due to their faith? Has anyone lost a job over clinging to their Christian values? 
Have you ever been mocked, really, truly mocked and hated by the world? Or has your Christianity made you more comfortable? Do we buy and own new vehicles because God wanted us to have them? Same with nice houses, cabins, boats, toys, electronics, devices. Let's be honest. If I show you today that Christianity isn't real, what do you really lose on this earth? If God isn't real, you still have your savings account, you still have your nice phone, you still have an expensive vehicle or two or three, you still have a good home, a boat, an attractive spouse, family, fun memories of vacations and plans to do more, solid friends, a great job, 401k, good food to eat, etc. What do you lose? So again, if I prove to you right now that Jesus isn't real, how would your life change? Other than no longer wasting your time on Sunday mornings, wasting your time praying and reading and giving, would anything change? Maybe some of us here would leave today and try harder to go out tomorrow to get ours in the world. We'd be more cutthroat at work to try and get that promotion to make more money so that we could in turn spend more money. We'd also probably be probably be less trusting of people <clears throat> in general since we realize that we have been lied to the entire duration of our faith. Maybe we'd be a little sad because we realize now that this earth is all we got. But that sad sadness wouldn't last long. It would metastasize into our brain to tell us to live it up. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if if the resurrection isn't real, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Live it up. If Christianity is a sham, would your life look any different? In 1 Corinthians 15, 19, Paul says this about the reality of our lives if Christianity is a mere fairy tale. He says, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we, of all, we are of all men to be most pitied. Why? If there's nothing after this life and we believed in vain, why are we to be most pitied? What do you believe about God? Do you believe that faith in Him produces health, wealth, prosperity? We might not believe this to the degree of the charismatics like Joel Osteen's and Kenneth Copeland's who, who tell you that if you have enough faith, you'll, you'll have a mansion and you can buy a jet and that's all God wants is for you to have a, an abundant life or that you can pray away cancer. But do we believe that God wants to bless us to make us more comfortable? That if we are good Christians, life will go well. That we'll get a promotion at work or if you own your own business, that God will make sure that you make enough, not just to stay afloat, but to live comfortably. Do you believe that God cares about how you spend your money, how you spend your time? Has your God granted you immense Christian liberty for you to do whatever 
watch whatever, buy whatever, or listen to whatever music you want. We like to talk about Christian liberty. You know who doesn't like to talk about Christian liberty? The Bible. I can think of three times off the top of my head where, where Christian liberty is talked about. In 1 Corinthians, the church of Corinth is rebuked for abusing their liberty. In Galatians, he encourages them to, no, 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 you do have Christian liberty, but why? Because these people are falling under the trap of legalism, but not legalism like we like to throw out legalism today, as if anybody up here at the pulpit tells you to read your Bible. So, whoa! Legalist. That's not what Paul is talking about. Paul's talking about legitimate Jewish customs, earning your salvation through circumcision and following the law. And Paul says, no, 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 you don't have to do this. You have the liberty, the freedom in Christ not to. And in Romans, Paul talks about Christian liberty, but it's very in tune with your conscience. You have to be in tune with the spirit and with your conscience. Some people can do this, some people can't. If your conscience says no, our consciences are so calloused that the things we watch, the things we listen to, the things that we do are absolutely, inerrantly, unequivocally sinful. But we like to say, well, freedom in Christ says I can. Scripture says you can't, but we don't like to hear those things. Who is your God? Is God the reason you have nice things and live easy, comfortable lives? Or is he the excuse? Is God the reason that you live an easy and comfortable life? Or is he the excuse for you to live an easy and comfortable life? In other words, has God really given you and I the freedom to conduct our lives in the way that we do? Or have we told God that he has to be okay? with how we live our lives. Seriously, if you left church today thinking that the Bible was a joke and you've been lied to this whole time, would the world look at you in pity? Let's be honest. They might look, look at you and I and think, well, they're an idiot for actually believing the Bible. But are they going to pity the big picture of your life? You still have a good job, a nice car, you don't live in a box, and you have people that love you. So no, we wouldn't be pitied. Let's not fool ourselves. If Christianity isn't real, you know who would be pitied? Paul. He's just one example that we will get to in a second. What about Abraham, servant of God, who left his home and the comfort of his land to go into the wilderness to follow the Lord? What about Moses, who left the pleasures of Egypt to go suffer for the reproach of Christ with God's chosen people? What about the early church, who for the first century, if you professed faith in Christ, you were dipped in hot wax and burned like a candle to light the streets of Rome? You think they're pitied? What about William Tyndale, the reason that we have Bibles in print, the reason that we can read in English, William Tyndale, burned at the stake at the age of 42, never married, alone. His life is to be pitied. About the churches in China and Afghanistan today that have thousands of believers daily getting arrested, beaten, thrown in jail, and ultimately killed for their faith. They certainly are to be most pitied. Most pitied. 
for their faith costs them. Before we get to the text and the reason for why I started today's sermon the way I did, does anyone know what happened on April 18th, 1775? Paul Revere rode through the city chanting, The British are coming, the British are coming. Why? He was warning them so that they would be prepared for the American Revolution that was about to begin the very next day. How did the people respond? They got ready. They prepared themselves in battle, and just over a year later, they were victorious as America earned its freedom on July 4, 1776. You know how the people didn't respond? They didn't tell him, hey, you're evil. The news you are giving is going to disrupt the comfort of my life and my family. Therefore, you're the enemy. If they responded that way, they would have lost. America would not be free. Here's another illustration. Imagine for a second that I'm your doctor. And you come in for your visit. And after I look at your results, I conclude with 100% certainty that you have cancer. How would you respond? Would you be grateful amidst your sadness of the bad news so that you can seek your next steps in a route of potential healing? Or would you curse me out, call me evil, deny the news that I am telling you, and find a doctor who is scared to tell you the truth so that you can continue your life as normal until the frightening end comes? As a pastor, it is my job to give bad news, to talk about the realities of this life. People always ask me, why do you want to become a pastor? I didn't. Really, truthfully, I didn't. Public speaking is in no way, shape, or form a natural gifting of mine. I hated it. In high school, I had to give a couple TED Talks. I was red-faced, sweaty hands, had to pee, stutter, horrible at public speaking. In fact, in my honors government class, uh, there was a kid who ran for president, and I ran as his vice president. And we were definitely going to win until I had to give my VP speech. <laughs> until that point, I don't know if we received any votes after that. I was a horrible speaker. Didn't want to. Not only that, but I went, when I went to Bible school, I went for all the wrong reasons. I went to play sports. And I really did go to Bible school thinking that I was the cock of the walk. I'd get all the girls, I'd impress them with my mad sports skills, and I'd go on living a complacent Christian life the way I had done the previous 19 years of my life. While at Bible school, Christ radically transformed my life. He showed me that God is not somebody, not just this God up in heaven that we say that we believe in, live our life however we want to, and at the end of the day, hope that the good outweighs the bad. He's not a God that just sits in heaven and says, you prayed that prayer when you were six, you were baptized when you were 16, you're mine forever. That's not what God says. Christ comes into your life and he changes you from the inside out. He, he makes you his own. He causes the very obedience in your life that you need to follow him. He doesn't just save you, he, he continues to hold you through your salvation. He will sanctify you. 
that when I heard these truths at Bible school about Christ living in me and through me, I was impressed upon with the zeal for the lost that exists within the church. Because for 19 years of my life, I thought I was saved, and I don't know if I was. Maybe the growth that is present now is proof that I was, that I was just a slow learner. But the reality is, is that infantile stage that I was at best in isn't what God wants for my life, and it isn't what he wants for your life. I began seeking the Lord all the time. I said, God, what do you have for me? And my zeal for the lost within the church was too much. It compelled me. I had to go into ministry. I had to. I had to warn the people like Paul Revere that the British are coming. Satan is real. Hell is real. Heaven is real. Jesus is real. The Bible is real. Being a pastor is not fun. In no way, shape, or form is being a pastor fun. It is not glorious in any way, shape, or form. If I could do anything else on this earth, I would, but I can't. It is the most disappointing, lonely, sad career imaginable. You're not only the enemy of the world, you are oftentimes the enemy in the church. If you try and take the scripture seriously, if you try and take the Christian life seriously, you'll get labeled a legalist. We don't want that. It's mumbo jumbo. Tell me how I can feel good about myself. When I was back in Montana, just two months ago, I had to sit down with my aunt. My aunt and uncle, I got 10 cousins. They're mother and father of 10. And they have deterred and left the faith, but according to most, they haven't left the faith. They are, in my opinion, the most heretical people I've ever met in my entire life. They still profess to love Jesus and know Jesus, and their entire ministry in life is focused on who they think Jesus is. They couldn't be more wrong. Jesus just wants to bless you and give you good things. It's so awesome. Pray away that suffering. Being a Christian means that you have to have hard conversations. I had to sit down with my aunt at my family's little deli that we have and tell her, Jackie, you have to repent. We do not believe in the same God. What you are doing is a lie and you are deceiving many. You think that's fun for me? You think I enjoy that? No. Do you think I enjoy getting phone calls from my mom who's crying on the phone about her sister who is deceived and is deceiving many? Scripture tells us very clearly in his word. We're not to associate with deceivers. We're not to greet with them. We're not to eat with them. That might sound harsh, but it's Jesus' word, not mine. You think that I enjoy being at odds with my family members? Nobody likes to give people bad news. Has anyone in here ever read Pilgrim's Progress? 
No show of hands. <laughs> it's a book by John Bunyan, a Puritan in the 1700s. So a man that is claimed to that if you would have stabbed him anywhere in his body, it wouldn't have been blood that oozed out of him. It would have been scripture verses. This was a man that knew the Bible and knew it well. And in this book, he tells the story of a man named Christian and his path to the celestial city, his path to heaven, from the way scripture depicts the life of a follower of Jesus. And on his journey to the heavenly city, Christian encounters many snags and many trials and many temptations that slow him down, that deter him, and almost cost him his life. As a one point in time where he has, he's got this, this burden amongst him, it's this burden of, of, of unconfessed sin and, and all these worldly desires as well as like being reinvigorated to follow Jesus and he's carrying this thing and it's super heavy. And at one point in time, he runs into this guy named Worldly Wiseman. He says, don't, don't worry about that thing. It's fine. It's fine. Worldly Wiseman is not just the world. It's the pastors in this world that say, it's fine. Who cares? We all live in sin. We're all sinners. It's okay. Just continue. You prayed the prayer. Good. You're awesome. Good. Continue on. Way to go, brother. You've been going to church for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. Perfect, you're good. Don't worry about that. He runs into him, and it gets him off the wrong path. And when he talks to the evangelist again, the one who got him on the right path in the first place, he says, there, he says, Christian, there are two things that this deceiver, worldly wise men, caused you to do. The first is that he caused you to easily go out of the way leave Christianity, true biblical Christianity. And second is that he made the difficulty of your journey something you wanted to avoid. He made the difficulty of your journey something that you want to avoid. We don't like suffering. We want to avoid it at all costs. And because of that, there are now churches that teach that suffering is to be avoided. Christian ultimately stays the course and reaches heaven, being sanctified through the many trials along the way. It's a glorious story. Two nights ago, I read the book, The Celestial Railroad by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Anybody read that? No. Okay. <laughs> Nathaniel Hawthorne is a Christian writer in the mid-1800s who was distraught over the complacent Christianity that existed within the church at his time. And in his book, he tells the story of a man who is familiar with Christian's journey to the celestial city, but instead of taking the same narrow and difficult path that Christian took, he ran into a train director named Mr. Smooth It Away, who told the professing believer that he could get him to the celestial city without all the hassle that Christian had to go through. That was appealing to the man, and onward they went. They truly bypassed every single trial and every snare. They get to the slew of despondency, and lo and behold, they built a bridge. They can go right over it. They don't got to go through it anymore. They get to the mountain of humiliation. Lo and behold, they drilled a, they drilled a hole right through the middle of the mountains for the railroad, to, for the train to just go right on through. They don't have to be humiliated. The river that leads into eternal life, no longer did they have to trudge through it. 
They had a steamboat for it. Along the way, the professing believers saw how remarkable it was that the church and the world had essentially become one. The narrow way was widened. Enemies of, the Christ, enemies of Christ were now on good terms with him. And the worldly treasures were no longer temptations to the Christian life, but they were blessings from God. The same snares that Christian had to face on his journey, like Apollyon, that guy now worked for the railroad. He was the one, yeah, I'll take you to the celestial city. Vanity Fair, the city, the worldly life that had everything that the world had to offer, that imprisoned Christian in his journey, that cost faithful his life on his journey. Well, now it looks so much like the world. There was a church on every corner. And these people could get anything and everything that they wanted. It was amazing. The professing believer even says, Wow, John Bunyan would be so pleased to see how far we have come. I think that's the reality today. We like to think, wow, how far we have come. How far we have come. How far we have gone. That's the reality. We have gone backwards. The fact that every single person and their dog claims to be a Christian on this earth and in this country is ridiculous. The professing believer loved this new and improved journey so much so that he even encountered two other professing believers who were taking the similar path as Christian. And instead of joining them, he made fun of them for their zeal and their vanity of taking the Christian life too seriously. When instead, they could be enjoying the ride like he was. In fact, once this professing believer got to Vanity Fair, the worldly city, he couldn't even imagine how the celestial city could be better. We sang a song this morning that says, I searched the world, it couldn't fill me. Do we actually believe that? I mean, let's be honest. What fills us? The world. You might think to yourself, no way, not me. It does. It does. How many of us go on trips and just have the most amazing times of our lives? Was that Christ fulfilling you or was it the trip? Because if, if a snare happened during that trip, you probably weren't enjoying it. It wasn't Christ fulfilling you. I mean, seriously, like, let's talk about things. Pets. Are ridiculous. I'm not saying they're sinful, but they're ridiculous. Introverts cling to their pets. They find joy in their pets. If their pet were to die, they would be sad. Not just sad, but emotionally wounded deeply. That's ridiculous. I'm not here to say, like, you can't cry over that kind of stuff. I'm just saying, let's be honest, what fills us? Did we really search the world and it couldn't fill us? Because the world is pretty fulfilling to a lot of people and to a lot of church people. We do whatever we want and we find a lot of fulfillment in the world. While that professing believer was thinking to himself, how could heaven be any better than this? And again, let's camp there. How many of us are afraid of death? A lot. We shouldn't be. As Christians, we shouldn't be. How many of us, when we lose loved ones, it's like the hardest thing imaginable? It shouldn't be. If that person is a believer, that is a time of rejoicing. 
So many of us, we don't want to die. We haven't done everything that we want to do. I wanted to go to Hawaii first. I wanted to become a doctor first. I wanted to get through college first. I wanted my kids to get out of the house and I, so I could retire and travel the world. Heaven, worshiping the Lord all day, this does not sound appealing. The world is quite fulfilling. And this professing believer saw that and thought that until the two pilgrims trudging along warned him that if he truly wants to get to the celestial city, he will have to abandon the ease of the train and join them. The professing believer was convicted for a moment until Mr. Smoothedway came back and reminded him of the ease of the train and assured him that this comfortable path was better than the path of the pilgrims. To spoil the story, once the train finally got to the celestial city, only two people had the right tickets to get in the men that warned him to take the narrow way. The rest of them died in their sins. Christianity is real. Matthew 16, 26, Jesus says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? I think many of us, myself included, have gained much more of the world than we'd like to admit. And I, for one, don't want to take that risk anymore. Just before Jesus says this, he says in verses 14 and 25, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He says the Christian life will cost you, it will cost you your life. You have to deny yourself, not just one time in your prayer of repentance, but continually. The only way to really live, he says, is to die. This is why Christians, if this is all a sham, are to be most pitied. Paul is to be most pitied, which is why in Colossians 1, verse 24, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do share on, my, on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. As Paul is writing this, he is literally chained up in house arrest where he is fully dependent on the churches to make sure that he is fed and taken care of. If the churches don't provide for Paul, he dies, and he's chained up in his house under arrest. And up until this point, he has gone through numerous sufferings. Remember what happened in Lystra? He was stoned to the point of death for sharing the gospel. They think that he's dead. They drag him out of the city. And you can say, well, yeah, but that was only for Paul because Jesus tells him in Acts 9.16, Paul, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake talking specifically about Paul. He's going to show Paul how much Paul must suffer for his namesake. However, if the suffering intended was just for Paul, his message to the church in Acts 14.22, directly after being stoned, this is literally two verses after we read that he is stoned so badly to the point of death that they drag him out of the city thinking he's dead. Two verses later, he comes back to Lystra, the same city where he was stoned, and his message of evangelism is... Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. We, 
And that's not all. Paul tells us, the church, in 2 Timothy 1.8, to join him in the suffering. He says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. But this joining isn't actually optional. But as he says in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Definite. So suffering is good, and it's inevitable for all true Christians. But why is Paul rejoicing about it? And what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Right, that sounds heretical. If we're being honest, if we, if we read the text and we say, Paul talking about himself filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, that sounds heretical. It sounds like he's trying to add to the atonement, that Paul's blood is almost on the same level as Christ's. And especially after, after, after studying what we just studied in verses 15 through 20, about how amazing Jesus is, how glorious he is, how supreme he is, how sufficient he is, that seems really strange for Paul to say. Therefore, let's address this alleged heresy first. Paul is not adding to the atonement, nor is he claiming to. That would be heresy. We know from all over Scripture that Christ's sacrifice is 100% sufficient to cover all sin. Hebrews 10.14 says, For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So, what is lacking? What is lacking is the physical presentation of the suffering. Paul makes this point clear. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 25 and 30, he tells of his thanksgiving for the church of Philippi, sending him Epaphroditus to encourage him while he's in jail. While Epaphroditus is on his voyage to, to see the Apostle Paul, who's sitting in jail, Epaphroditus gets really sick, almost to the point of death, Paul says. But he continues trekking, he continues trudging, he gets to Paul, and he's not in good health. And see, Epaphroditus' life, that is an encouragement to Paul, for the sake of the church and for Paul, where he says, thank you, Epaphroditus, thank you, Church of Philippi, for you have filled up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Paul was given a real picture of the cross of Christ right there by Epaphroditus risking his life to encourage him. For the sake of Paul, he prevailed, and that gave Paul a picture of the gospel. That's what Paul is doing for the church of Colossae. That's what Paul is doing for us today. He's giving us a picture of the gospel in his suffering. When we see the churches today, in China, Afghanistan, Korea, suffering for the sake of the gospel, we see a picture of the gospel. If there are members within this congregation that literally suffer for the sake of the gospel, that there's somebody in this room that loses their job because of their faith, that gives us a picture of the gospel. Thus Paul in his suffering is giving the church of Colossae a picture of the gospel. Just as Christ died on their behalf, Paul is laying down his life for the sake of the spreading of the gospel that has encouraged both you and I as well as the church of Colossae. Why is he rejoicing? He gets to suffer like Christ. This is just like in Acts chapter 4 and 5 where Peter and the other apostles are told not to preach the gospel anymore. The, the 
The people in the land say, nope, quit it. No more teaching and speaking of God. No more spreading the gospel. To which they respond, we cannot stop speaking about the gospel. That's their response. We cannot. And because of their defiance, they are flogged and beaten and sent on their way. Their response, rejoicing. Acts chapter 5, verse 41 through 42. It says, so they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer his shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. These people with wounds. And we could probably see their bones at some point in time, so they were flogged so badly, are rejoicing that they got to suffer like Christ. At the end of the book of John, in chapter 21, Jesus tells Peter the death that he will endure to glorify God. Peter was crucified like Christ. Yet Peter... Not to put himself on the same level as Christ said, hang me upside down. Peter got to die the same death as his master. And that was a cause of rejoicing. Paul says, I get to rejoice. I know my life is not fun. I know it is horrible being chained with armed guards, relying on everybody else for food and for encouragement. But I get to rejoice. Because of Jesus. I'm suffering like Jesus suffered. We should be able to rejoice in the afflictions of our life that are directly tied to our faith in Christ. You lose a friend because you're not willing to do the same things that you used to do with them because of your faith, because of your Christian convictions. They say, I don't want to be your friend anymore. Rejoice. That's amazing. You lose your job, or you have to take a pay cut, or you get demoted because of your Christian convictions. Rejoice. We stand for our faith, and we rejoice through suffering. Paul has the same attitude. He is overjoyed that he is counted worthy by God to suffer due to the rich beauty of Christ, as Mark taught on the last several weeks in verses 15 through 20. And not only that, but Paul goes on to say in verse 25 that the reason of his appointing to be a minister was so that he could fully carry out the word of God. Now this word fully actually is better translated fulfilled. And with that in mind, what Paul is actually saying is that God has appointed him to not only preach the word, but to fulfill it, to live it out. And a big part of that living it out is in his suffering. That's true for us, too. In 1 Peter 2, verse 21, Peter says that we have been called to suffer just like Christ. He writes, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. And Paul even says in Romans 8, 16 and 17, that we can only be heirs with Christ if we suffer with him. He says, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. You see, just like Paul, we are called to suffer. It isn't bad. In fact, it's good. 
John Piper even goes as far as to say that suffering is part of God's strategy for making known to the world who Christ is, how he loves, and how much he is worth. You get that last reason? How much Christ is worth. Our suffering shows how much Christ is worth. One of the best proofs, hear me out, you apologetic guys, one of the best proofs for Christianity is Paul's radical conversion. Either Jesus is God or Paul is a lunatic. He gave up prestige, wealth, friends, comfort, and a long life to follow and suffer for Jesus. Paul is undoubted, undoubtedly a historical figure. His life is written in the history books, not just in Scripture, but everywhere. Jesus is God or Paul is a lunatic. Paul's radical conversion proves how much Christ is worth. Our radical transformation in our own lives should also prove how much Christ is worth. And it should be a wonderful proof of Christianity. Are we living for Christ? Are we obeying Christ? If we are, the world will hate you. It will. You will suffer. You will lose friends. You might run into problems at work. You will have to give up your hobbies, your freedoms. You lay it all down, your toys, for Christ. He becomes your life. You deny yourself. You pick up your cross. You follow Christ. You're pursuing Christ. It means you read your Bible. It means you pray. It means you obey Him. It means you come to church. It means you fellowship with His people. Why? Because you love Jesus. And the natural fruit of that will be trials and tribulation that we embrace, but we don't only embrace, we rejoice in them because it gives us a picture of the gospel and it gives everybody else around us a picture of the gospel. We should be able to come here every Sunday morning and be suffering servants of Christ. Tell me about your hard week. What kind of trials and tribulations did you have to go through for your sanctification, for your endurance? God is a God of reconciliation. God is a God of restoration. There is nothing that you have done or ever will do that makes you too far from Christ. Embrace that. But don't just live in grace that we can continue doing whatever we want to do. We live for Christ now. We are to look different. The nation of Israel was to look different by all of their laws and regulations. Every single person knew that's an Israelite because of the different things that he was required to do. Christians are the same thing. You really should be able to go to Walmart and be like, that guy's a Christian. I can see Jesus in him. By the way he dresses, by the way he talks, by the way he looks, by, by the way he, the, the, the hobbies that he does, the things he, the things he watches on TV, the music he listens to. Not in a fundamentalist, legalistic way. Where if I'm a Christian, I got to do X, Y, and Z. But out of a genuine love and zeal for Christ. At the time of Christ's death, there are no more than just over 500 Christians recorded in Scripture. In AD 70, Nero is slaughtering them. Yet by AD 300, Rome is a Christian nation. 
Suffering has always been the seed to evangelism. Which is why you will be hard-pressed to find any real servant of God in Scripture or in church history or around the globe today, any real servant of Christ in Scripture, in church history, or around the globe today that doesn't also suffer for his namesake. The degree of suffering will vary, but the suffering will and is to be distinguished from common, common sufferings to all men. Getting cancer or COVID isn't the suffering I'm talking about. Getting in a car accident or breaking your arm isn't the suffering that I'm talking about. Losing your life, your loved ones, your job, your hobbies, your money, etc. For the sake of Christ, his church, and his gospel. That is the suffering that I am talking about. For us today to think that we can avoid this. We are nothing more than the professing Christian in Hawthorne's book that I referenced earlier that is taking the train of ease to heaven only to be significantly disappointed when God says to him, depart from me for I never knew you. Let that not be us. Let's not even take the chance. led us with fear and trembling fall down to our knees in humble repentance and submission unto Christ let us like Paul says to die daily to our sins to our desires let us as he says work out our salvation with fear and trembling with fear and trembling with fear and trembling do we tremble before the Lord over our sin are we disgusted by our sin? Let us, as Jesus says, embrace the suffering and find peace in him for he has overcome the world. To close out, take heart, brethren. Not in your relaxing and your complacent Christianity that gives you the freedom to do whatever you please. Abandon that form of Christianity. But take heart in your zealous pursuit of Christ that yields righteousness in the midst of suffering. For as Paul says in Romans 8:18, 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Submit and suffer with Christ now. It's worth every second as it pales in comparison to the riches of being in his presence forever and ever. Let me pray. Father God, Lord, we are an ignorant people. Lord, we love the gift that we think you have given us oftentimes. But we don't love the giver, and thus, Lord, we don't actually love the gift. We love the idea of the gift. We love what it promises, and we like to convince ourselves that one day that will be ours. But Lord, I think oftentimes we are deceived. Lord, like the pilgrims that we got to learn about today, I think oftentimes, Lord, we take the easy route. 
the path of least resistance, the path that will win us the most friends and hurt the least amount of feelings. Lord, the path that doesn't endure suffering and tribulation, the path that rejects those ideologies and gets rid of them, throws them aside. The path that says, Lord, thank you for suffering on my behalf, but I don't have to. That says, Lord, thank you for the gift that you have given with your son and your spirit, but I don't want to obey. I like my life. Lord, I pray that your word this morning would be your word, would be, Lord, the, the proclamation of not just your truth, but, Lord, in you doing it. Lord, that we, that we would leave here today desiring you more, devoting ourselves to you more, taking this all much more seriously. Lord, let us be like Paul and suffer for your name's sake, for the church's sake, for the gospel's sake. And let us do so in rejoicing. Lord, let us be a people that are not only reconciled and restored to you, but with each other. Lord, give us a heart that longs for you, that longs to pray to you, commune with you, be in your word, study your word, grow. Lord, we love you. Thank you for providentially bringing every single one of us here this morning. May you instill within us a greater fear, a greater hunger, a greater thirst for you, your word, your righteousness, your people. Lord, may you humble us day in and day out to die to self, to live for you. Lord, let you be the focal point of our life. You be the end goal of our life. Your glory be the reason for why we exist. Father God, be exalted in this place, be exalted in our lives. And Lord, my, may our lives too be a living testimony like Paul's and give others a picture of the gospel. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for the opportunity to worship you, to be gathered in your name. Lord, let it be true that we are children of you. Forgive us of our sins. Lead us to repentance. Lead us to confession. And let us live in Christ both now and forevermore. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.